It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book White House Faith, again here at NRB, the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando, Florida. It is the largest gathering of mostly Christian media in the world. Thousands here representing a lot of different organizations and media and TV, streaming, podcasts, and beyond. Talking today, though, with Pastor Lucas Miles. He's a writer, speaker, film producer. He's the lead pastor of Influence Church in Granger, Indiana, host of the Lucas Miles Show host of um, Epic TV's Church and State and founder of Miles Media, also on the faculty of Summit Ministries. Yes, I am. Uh, Yes, Jeff Myers has been a a friend of Lighthouse Faith. Yeah, Jeff's incredible. Um, In short, you're a very busy guy. You know what? Um, I I believe you get one life to live. I want to take advantage of every opportunity I can. And this is one of the reasons we call our church Influence Church, is that, you know, we really believe that as Christians, we're called to influence culture in the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can do that by sitting home and watching Netflix. And I, I certainly do that every now and then. Yes, but, I have my you know, Bridgerton I, I, you know, obsession it, <laughs> every once in a while, too. Yeah, I, I'm not, uh, not going to condemn that. But, but I think that we have an opportunity to really, um, you know, now, now's the time. This is yeah. the season. Well, you, um, a lot of people may be familiar with your other book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. It is an indictment of the liberal philosophies that are permeating mainstream churches and not even mainstream churches, but just the church itself. Your follow-up book is really more targeted, uh, more targeted on the cause behind the cause. Yes. Right. It's called Woke Jesus, the False Messiah Destroying Christianity. Um, It really is a book for this time in history, um, for a time that is seeing a veritable war on the tenets of Christianity from within. And this is different. This reminds me of what C.S. Lewis warned about in the epilogue to Screwtape Letters. Yeah. That the way to really attack the church, God's church, is through the altar. Yeah. You know, drinking to the fine wine of Pharisee and mm-hmm. priest. This is what's happening here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the, 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 two, the first two heresies to face the church and really come against Christianity, they came from within. You had the Judaizers on one hand, and then you had the Gnostics on the other. Neither one of those had their own congregations or their own sanctuaries. They were found in the church. If you wanted to find a Judaizer or you wanted to find a Gnostic, you would find them within the first century church. And the same is true today. I think that... Um, now, it, explain the Judaizers and the Gnostics. Yeah. Now, I know what they are, but I want to Yeah, no, certainly, certainly, yeah. It, so I appreciate that. So the Judaizers were essentially, uh, it was sort of a pharisaical mindset that th- these were people who were once uh, followers of Judaism that found sort of a, a form or, or identified to a degree with the message of Christ, but they tried to keep all of the religious requirements of Judaism that they then applied to Gentile Christians. So, you know, Paul kind of warns about them multiple times in the New Testament about, you know, they're spying on the freedoms that we have in Christ and trying to force right. kind of these regulations. It's on. like saying, you got to be a Jew first before you can be Christian. Exactly, like, exactly. This is the pathway to Christianity is through Judaism. Exactly. And so then then you have the Gnostics, which were, you know, kind of the other side of the pendulum, that, that they were, um, uh, it was sort of this amalgamation between a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Christianity, and then some pagan ideas like Zoroastrianism and other thoughts where they had a very evolved and complex uh, theology. In fact, most Gnostics wouldn't even agree on what their theology was. So it very, becomes very difficult to explain. But essentially, the, the underlying 
mainline view was that the, uh, the Christian Gnostics believed that Jesus did come to liberate them, but that Jesus himself was not the same as the creator God. So as Christians, we believe that, that there is a trinity. We believe that the God, the creator, and Jesus are one and the same in the sense that they are part of the Godhead. Uh, Gnostics believe that Jesus came to liberate us from the creator and that, mm. that the creator God oppressed us by placing us into a physical body, that he took a spirit that was preexistent, put it into a physical body that put us in a state of oppression. So they, it was actually an early form of this teaching of systemic oppression was found in Gnosticism, right, right. which is why I think it connects to much of what we're seeing today. And that Jesus came to liberate us out of that oppression through some sort of higher consciousness or higher awareness. In fact, the, the, um, the Manichees, which were a type of Gnostics, they called Jesus, Jesus the Luminous, because he awakened Adam. And I think that it's very, you know, there's, there's all these nuances that we see almost relived today with woke culture that's using some of the same language that early Gnostics used to, you know, uh, um, you know, propagate. I mean, Gnosticism is like ground clutter. I mean, yeah. if you're a radar operator and you're trying to look <laughs> for something, ground clutter kind of obscures it. Yes. Yes. You know? And so Gnosticism is kind of like ground clutter. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair estimation. And I think that's what's happening today. People. Everybody has a stake in the game if there's a God. Nobody's neutral when it comes to religion right. and it comes to faith because a belief about God is a belief about God. You believe something. Yes. So, you know, one of the things that CRT, we're talking, you really focus on critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And this is the big debate in Congress and among politicians. DeSantis talked about it, you know, when he talked here on Monday night. Um, you know, I'm dating my week here, but definitely he's been talking about it. What are the main issues with CRT? Critical race theory, or CRT, is antithetical to Christianity for a couple reasons. I think the, the most... Um, uh, the most important to point out is that that all critical all critical theories, whether it's critical race theory or critical queer theory, all critical theories in that nature, they they push this idea of oppressor versus oppressed. But what they do is they rob the Christian of the ability to be able to suffer for Christ. So as a believer, when I'm persecuted, when the world hates me, what the Bible tells me is that it hates you because it first hated him, you know, and that it hates, it hates God, it hates Jesus. And so there's a spirit in the world that hates God. And so therefore, when we come as a representation of him, that the world hates us. And so in critical race theory, what we see is that you cannot suffer for Christ because you're, you're, the suffering that we see in the world today is because of systemic oppression be, due to immigration status, you know, country of origin, skin color, socioeconomic, you know, uh, status. We might see in critical queer theory, things like because of your sexual orientation, your gender, um, your sexual persuasion. And so all of these things get in the way of actually being able to suffer for Jesus. And so it, it becomes a very me-focused victimhood that happens as opposed to the Christian that we take an empowered view of persecution where I'm not a victim in persecution. It's a glory for me to mm -hmm. be able to suffer for Christ because I know it brings glory to the Lord. So CRT, among many other things and reasons why it's, it's antithetical to Scripture, it actually robs from God and man the opportunity to suffer for Christ. And you really go back to, I mean, you actually go back to the beginning of Christianity because the heresies were there from the very Correct. beginning. And it has really never left Christianity. There's always yes. someone coming in trying to redefine Christianity. But also you bring out the point that a lot of these focus on trying to 
focus on Jesus' humanity rather rather than his divinity. Yes. And they can't, you know, it's like it's so much easier to have a Jesus that's human because then he's not my authority. You know, this became a major problem during the post-Enlightenment time period. So, you know, late 1700s, there was so much, such an emphasis and explosion in the world of um, you know, critical thinking and logic and reason. There was a, we had, you know, great philosophers arise like Kant and Hegel that were highly influential on this. We have, you know, eventually in the 1800s, Marx. Uh, we have the birth of the scientific method in Darwin. Uh, so there was all of this push towards sort of this increase of man's reason and understanding. And so all of a sudden, for really the first time since the, the birth of Christianity, Scripture was scrutinized in a new way. And people began to look at Scripture to see, does this line up with logic? Does this line up with reason? Does this line up with the scientific method? Now, I believe that God is the God of logic and, and that good logic and good reason line up with God. But there are certain things in faith and in the supernatural that we can't explain with human reasoning or right. human wisdom. Right. So they would look at the miracles of the Bible and they would say, okay, did you could Jesus really have walked on water? Could Jesus really have fed the 5,000? Could he really have been raised from the dead? And so they looked for justifications for these things, and they essentially introduced, all oh, this is a little bit anachronistic in the language, they sort of applied that, that, that some of the ideas in Scripture were mytho-history, mm-hmm. that, that, that right, it was right. sort of this, this, this fable that had came out, that there was a real Jesus buried in the story somewhere, but they had to dig through the fables and the myths to find him. So they started writing extra-biblical biographies about Jesus. There were literally hundreds of these written, all the way up to the 1900s. And they became very, very prevalent. And so they, some were ridiculous where they would say, Jesus didn't really feed the 5,000. He had a, uh, by my miraculously multiplying the loaves and the fishes, he had a whole team of monks in a cave that were like handing out, like it was like a whole like Krispy Kreme, you know, factory in there passing stuff out. that there's no proof of any of it. Exactly. No proof. It was literally just them going, how could this have happened logically with no evidence and just, you know, fabricating these things. There's also, and I talk about this in the book, I actually haven't addressed this in a lot of interviews is that um, among critical theologians, there uh, was this early so-called discovery of what's known as the Gospel of Q. And the Gospel of Q is supposedly a fifth gospel that that, um, many theologians believe that the other gospels were based on. Well, the problem is there's no evidence for it. And so this is a way that they use to explain how some of the synoptic gospels have gotten off track because they were they were kind of copies of a copy of this original gospel of the Gospel of Q. And so they, they you know, we have people like Bart Erdman and others who are famous, you know, scholars of Christ, but who is a non-believer himself. And so he uses the Gospel of Q as evidence for a lot of the things. But here's no early Christian in the first 500 years of Christianity mentions the Gospel of Q. There's no reference to it. It's literally a fabrication of modern theologians that we have this idea that there's a gospel of Q, but that is what's being taught in our Bible colleges, our seminaries around the country. Oh my goodness. So, so you have these past, you have leftist, you know, administrators and board members at Bible colleges around the country that are allowing this to continue at their institutions. And so, you know, so even schools like Wheaton and, and Biola that, that have been, you know, you know, really mainstays of good Christian education, and there's a lot of great professors at those places. They've allowed this kind of teaching to sort of be, you know, uh, um, uh, front and center for many of the seminary students. They don't, they don't have the information just as information to say, this is what's out there. They're actually teaching it as I mean, look, there's good, something true. You know, there's professors like Sean McDowell, Josh McDowell's son, who's at mm-hmm. Biola, who, mm-hmm. who is, you know, brilliant mind. I'm sure he's presenting this as, hey, some people believe this, some people believe this. I don't know exactly what all his course structure is, but just, you know, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but we, we also have, um, you know, this is, you know, if you asked a, a student coming out of seminary, they would just, this is what I'm taught. This is what I know. It's like a teacher coming out, you know, of the university and they already have in there that DEI framework or that, that CRT framework.
framework within their, their mm-hmm. teaching style and structure. And so, um, you know, there's an indoctrination that's happened. And so progressive progressive professors are training progressive parishioners who are then getting into pulpits and and affecting their you know their parishioners in this way that it's it's uh, it's changing the nature of the church today so we now live in an age where i just finished a compilation book with dr george barna and arizona christian cultural center at the arizona christian university and and you know one of the stats that has come out of there is that we're down to like 25 percent of the church or less is all that is believed that all that's left that believes that the bible is inerrant authoritative word of god so 75 76 percent of the church believes the Bible is something less than the inspired word of God, that's a problem. Yeah, and so you right. start seeing this shift towards wokeism in the church, progressive Christianity, you know, the Christian left that I write about. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is interesting because the, one of the problems is not recognizing that the sin is in us that wants that to be, yeah. right? There, there is this part of us that we, we need to have authority over our lives. And that's really quite the interesting thing. One of the, one of the things I want to get at with CRT, though, because I think it's very, very important for Christians to understand that you know, the sin is the culprit. Sin is the culprit because it never, CRT never bows um, to its own culpability you know, the problem is always out there. Exactly. Exactly. And that, yeah, it's that nature of that systemic oppression, that it's somebody else's fault. For the Gnostics, they believed it, it was God's fault. Hegel sort of believed it was, you know, an issue, um, you know, in man as a whole, or he would also talk about the spirit uh, as, as having some culpability in that. For, you know, for Marx, it was the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. Uh, and then we see this critical theory, you know, and, and really all of this is sort of an iteration, even before it was called critical theory. It's that right. same question in the Garden of Eden of, did God really say? That's all you know, it. it's all always the questioning of what is true or what's held. God? Yes. It, and so it, it's, it's passed down. So from, from Marx, it, it goes to um, uh, liberation theology in the Catholic Church, where a priest, Gutierrez, in the 1950s sort of combines uh, Catholicism with this theological hitchhiker, I call it, of Marxism and comes up with liberation theology. That jumps to um, America in the form of black liberation theology with the teachings of James Cone. Um, we see a very similar view happen in Nazi Germany with Aryan Christianity, which is a, a, sort of this hybrid between that historical Jesus movement of the Enlightenment that was really rooted in Germany and mm-hmm. sort of you know carried on into the Third Reich. And they, they kind of have this very similar distorted view of Jesus. Jesus, where Jesus is a propaganda piece for the the, the atrocities of the Third Reich, right, um, right. and then we see the same thing today. You know, Jesus is used to justify. Uh, open borders. You know, Jesus was a refugee, so therefore we should have open borders as a result. You know, he's viewed as a socialist. He's viewed, you know, I mean, there, there's a, there was a, um, a dissertation that was written by a student. I can't remember if it was Cambridge or, Har- uh, or Cambridge or Oxford, where he proposed that Jesus was transgender because the moment that the spear pierced his side, it created a gaping wound in his, in his midsection that bled, and therefore he had both male and female genitalia at that time. He became transgender as wait, an wait intersectionality. Wait, 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 Dissertation for a doctoral how, theology student. Wait a second. How does Jesus being pierced in his side create transgenderism? It was a it was a surgery to open up. Essentially, he compares the wound in his side to female genitalia, and that would be like a surgical procedure that that God in his in his sovereignty, you know, um, allowed Jesus for the time he was on the cross to embody both genders. Somebody actually allows him to actually write this dissertation. It was championed. 
and it made I mean headlines around the country. It, it you know, and it's it is it's asinine. It's ridiculous. It would be almost comical if it wasn't so scary and you know irreverent to to our Savior. And so you know, this, but these are the, and we have uh, you know then the, the flip side to that is we have you know day to day influencers on TikTok from the left that are proposing ideas such as one you know that I found on TikTok that had you know literally hundreds of thousands of views that he proposes that Jesus was likely gay or potentially trans because he wore a tunic and a tunic is a lot like a dress so therefore Jesus was trying to identify as a woman and he does call John his beloved so therefore he's most likely we have gay such a warped idea of sexuality yes that we have to even warp Jesus sexuality yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, you know, and I think in our nation, I mean, you, whether you go back to you know John Money and the, the the studies that he did in in Cleveland, or or Alfred Kinsey at Indiana University and the horrific, um, uh, really experiments and, and that that and work that he did on sexual revolution in the 1940s. I mean, this has been building for a while. It's it, I think that you know there's the probably uneducated conservative that goes, this is all Obama's fault. You know, the fact <laughs> of the matter is, this has been going for a long time. Obama's culpable for some things. I mean, I, you know, I won't I won't deny that. But but this has been building for a long time. And I, I one of the things that I do in Woke Jesus is I talk about at the start of the book um, a quote from Irenaeus. And he was an early church father in the second century. And he writes that the reason why the first century church was not able to, to refute Gnosticism is because they didn't understand it. And, mm-hmm. and he goes on to write a 600-page book to help them understand Gnosticism. And it took a couple centuries, really, for the church to do, you know, kind of the, its job there. And for a season, Gnosticism dissipated. Um, today, we're in a similar predicament. Because the church doesn't understand uh, CRT. They don't understand um, uh, all the, the the nuances of wokeism. They don't understand transgenderism. They don't understand really what's happening with this this hypersexualized revolution in America. Mm-hmm. I think we're struggling to refute it. So I wrote Woke Jesus to try to empower the church to understand these topics, to compare them to to really the, the truths that we see in Scripture so they actually have a, an action plan of what they can do about it and how they can protect their own heart in the process. But the problem is, is that one of these, the problems, it's so ingrained in the public school system and in the secular kind of, you know, world out there and the worldview that we understand if God is love, then that's the most foundational aspect yeah. of our psyches yeah. to be loved and to love. And if that is distorted in any way, right. it becomes the f- obsession or the foundation of what, who we are. And that's where we're getting a lot of, and you, if you go back Nancy Percy has a book coming out about toxic masculinity and all of that and what happens to the public school systems in the uh, early years. And basically, they try to suppress natural boyhood. Right. Right? They try to make them into bad girls. Yes. And what does that Fascinating. do? What does that do to a, to a community, to a boy specifically, but to a community, if that's how you're raised? You know, I mean, the, the stats today is, it's uh, you know, we've heard up to a third of this younger generation self-identifies as part of the LGBT, you know, plus community. And this is, this is frightening. And it's frightening for a number of reasons, especially because of the, the mutilation that's happening, medical mutilation that's happening with the transgender movement, but just the confusion. What that means is that there's a lot of trauma. You know, when, when we used to have three or 4% of society, mm-hmm. you know, would identify this way. And now we've seen this, you know, really thousand fold increase in this way. It, it, it's showing that there's an amount of trauma. That trauma is happening to some degree in the home. It's also happening in our schools and it's, it's happening at an ideological level of what's being taught. Um, you know, I even think back to when I was a kid, we had the, the Shel Silverstein, the giving tree. 
And this whole book, it's painted as this great picture of selfless love, that this boy and this tree, the relationship, and the boy keeps coming back. At first he picks apples from the tree and he climbs in it, and then eventually he wants to travel the world, so he takes down some branches and builds a boat. Well, at the end of the story, the tree's a stump, and the boy's totally taking complete advantage of him. And that's almost being proposed. It's like, but look at the love and the friendship that they had. It was sick. It was, it was twisted. It was, it was codependency. But yet we have a society that's been raised on thinking like that, this co- that, that love equals acceptance. Mm-hmm. If I love you, I love, I mean, I, we're here at, you know, NRB, we're doing interviews back to back. I love it when somebody on my team goes, Lucas, you got some lunch in your teeth, or you got some lunch still left in your teeth before this interview. <laughs> They're loving me by telling me the truth about that at that moment. And so we need people in our life that are willing to tell us the truth and not just agree with us and just accept everything as true. If somebody says the sky is green and the grass is blue, I'm going to correct them because I love them. Right. And, right. I, and I think that we've lost that that art. And actually, I think we, although we're saying the word love, we've actually gotten away from a true understanding of love. It's been distorted. But what, what's a person to do? Because one of the things that happens is if you speak out against transgenderism, if you spoke out against you know, same-sex marriage or some of the things that are being taught in school, the response is always, you're a hate monger. You're hateful. Um, You're not, there's no argument. There's no, there, there is no debate. It's simply that you hate and they shut you down. Yeah. But it, it's, you know, I'll give you an example. I am, um, I'm on the planning committee for my 25th high school reunion. Wow. It's this summer. Wow. And but they love you. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, the last two that I've been, this is my third year or third reunion being on the planning committee. The last committee, uh, um, I, I was actually invited to speak and address the entire class at the reunion. This year, I've had a couple books come out between this reunion and the last reunion. And there is now 150 students, I went to a large high school, that are doing a counter reunion to boycott my wow. involvement with this, with this reunion. And wow. so there's sort of an anti-Lucas reunion that is, that is, you know, and unfortunately my reunion committee members have not thrown me over the board, you know, yet uh, for this. But, but, you know, and it's all because I'm, I'm accused of being a racist, a bigot, a Nazi, and everything else that's happening here because I believe in traditional view of marriage. Uh, because I believe that that Christianity is true. And there is this, this um, for the first time, here's the interesting thing that we have today, is that for the first time in our society, since the early church, Christianity is now being accused of being the unrighteous, uh, the, the um, really um, uh, evil and, and bigoted, religion that's prevalent in the world. In early Christianity, it was accused of all sorts of atrocities. It was accused of, of decimating the economy because so many people left the idol making business and all the things right, associated right, with right. the temple because they got saved. And so they were accused by governors and local leaders as, as tearing down the economy. Uh, they were accused of being um, uh, uh, atheists because they didn't worship all the other gods of Rome and they only yeah. worshiped one. They were accused of incest because they called each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes they'd call their spouse, their brother and sister in Christ. You know, uh, they were accused of all sorts of sexual deviance because they had these communion celebrations that only believing Christians were allowed to go into and they called them love fests. And so everybody just assumed of what happened in there when really they're in there praying and having communion with one another. And, and so people didn't understand the church at that time. So it was villainized mm-hmm. for the first time in literally two 2000 years, 
it, we're returning to that. The church is being villainized. Christians are being villainized. No longer are they, oh, that's the, you know, the holier than thou guy. That's what, yeah, that's when, right, you know, when I was right, younger, right. that's what somebody might have said. Now it is, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're a Nazi, because you hold to cr traditional Christian teaching. I, I believe a lot of the same things I still believed when I was in high school. Right, My beliefs right. haven't changed. The world has changed all around me exactly. about this. And that has then brought those accusations, that villainhood of these different beliefs. And so, you know, this is, it's, the church has not been in this time at any recent point in history. And so this is a challenging time for pastors. We really have to think through how to approach this. We have to think about the issues. And ultimately, we have to educate ourselves on this. I can't change what everybody says about me. I can just do me. And I think people that know me that actually take the time to do the research, th there's no question about, you know, the, the character or who I am or what I believe. Um, but, but those that aren't going to do that, they're never going to give you the benefit of the doubt. It's going right. to be very easy for them to throw those stones very quickly. I want to talk about uh, your hometown. Yes. Or close to your home, the South yes. Bend. Yeah. Granger's near South Bend, and uh, Mayor Pete, uh, our, our wonderful transportation secretary. You have a history with him. Yeah, so I started warning about Pete since probably 2012 or so, and I, I know Pete a little bit. I mean, we've not, you know, we've not been golfing buddies or anything like that, but we've <laughs> interacted over the years. He might claim he doesn't know me, but, um, but you know, we've we, I've been watching the policies that first that he put into place into South Bend, and then obviously on a national level here as as transportation secretary. And so I've been a very outspoken, um, you know, critic of his in this process. The interesting thing about Pete, you know, when he went on, well, first of all, I started warning early on that he was going to run for president. Right. Now, I didn't have any insider track information. I just I just know human nature, and I watched it, and I go, this guy's on a mission. But, what, but how did you know? And I want to go back to that. How did... When how did you know that he was on that track so, and that inside his mind he was thinking I could do president so I mean I saw how he held himself I saw how he put on um, you know his various events as mayor they felt very presidential the entire time the mm -hmm. way he handled press the way he handled media the way he you know set up the stage everything else it just always looked very very presidential there was also um, there was there was multiple times uh, that uh, it was reported that Zuckerberg came and met with Pete in South Bend wow. um, um, while he was still mayor and you know the assumption was that something was brewing there that there was some conversations that I, I, um, I believe that they were um, fellow classmates at Harvard mm -hmm. and so um, you know we just at, as local people we just felt it we saw it we knew it was happening and so uh, I started warning about that and everybody would just laugh oh he's not going anywhere he's not going to do this he's not going to make it because in, in South Bend you know unless you were you know um, a part of the Democratic machine there and South Bend although Indiana is a super majority red state South Bend's been Democratic stronghold for 60 plus years uh, and as far as in the mayor's office and so um, it was just it was laughed off it was oh people never do that I mean uh, we had you know Domino's Pizza had to come bail out the city because we had so many potholes in town <laughs> and the South Shore train that goes from Chicago to South Bend was constantly down so when he got president when he got transportation secretary all everybody in South Bend is going he never could fix the roads and he never could get the train working like why, why does he have any any credentials to do anything with transportation and, and we've seen you know how really horrific that that's been uh, you know and it, what are his credentials what are his credentials for thinking that he could be president of the United States you know I, I, I think in many ways the left found in Pete a uh, what I would call an Obama 2.0. He checked mm -hmm. the boxes. He speaks multiple language. He's got, you know, uh, uh, um, military experience. Um, he is, you know, a, a graduate of, of Ivy League school. Mm -hmm. um, he still has kind of that schoolboy hometown, you know, smile and, and, and feel to him. And, and, you know, he's obviously not a person of color, but he checked the box because of his sexuality yeah. to really be this sort of, you know, perfect candidate for where that is. You know, but, but those that kind of know his 
history. His, his father was a Marxist professor at the University of Notre Dame. He translated the Gramsci papers, which were, you know, once only in Italian written while Gramsci was in prison. He brings that out. A lot of why we have critical race theory today, and I'm not the first to report on this, you know, James Lindsay, others have, have mentioned this in the past, uh, is because of, of um, his father's work in bringing this into the English language for the first time. And so Pete's really been, you know, and his family's really been at the center of a lot of Marxist ideology, you know, being brought into America for some time. The thing that he did on the campaign trail that was very unique was, you know, we've had we've had candidates on both sides talk about their faith. Right. You know, I you know, I love God. I, you know, God bless America. These sorts of statements. Pete would exegete passages of scripture while he's on the campaign trail in back and forth with people, you know, on camera in order to justify open borders, socialism and other, you know, he, he, but he cherry picks them. Yes. Oh, exactly. Yeah. He's going to grab what's going to work. Now, you're not going to hear him talk about heaven and hell, repentance, about biblical view of sexuality. These things. It's always from a propaganda standpoint. And so, you know, I think that, you know, and I, I bring all this up you know, to, to say that I, I got into this conversation, you know, I was, I was a pastor in a small market in South Bend. You know, I've been, I've been at the same church for almost 20 years now that I pastor mm -hmm. and, and around, you know, 2012, I started becoming a little bit more vocal as we got to closer to 2016. I did a series at our church. Our church was growing. Um, we had a, you know, nice property. We had a lot of things going for us. And I put out uh, this eight week series at our church on basically looking at all the hot button issues of the time and what does the Bible say about each one of them. I didn't mm -hmm. promote a candidate. I didn't have a red hat, I, you know, or, you know, <laughs> you know, wave a banner on stage. Uh, I just taught on what the Bible says about these issues. And I had about 50% of my church leave. What? And, and so when 2020 happened, I was ready because I'd already gone through loss. I already saw, and I, I mean, and, and when this first happened, I was ready to quit the ministry. We lost a lot of friends. And, and a lot of this was not over national stuff. It was actually over local stuff of what we were calling out in the city of South Bend. And so that when this got to a national level in, in really, you know, after 2016 and into 2020, um, you know, it, it became a lot more full throttle and I just, I couldn't be silent anymore. And so, you know, I jumped in, I put out a book in 20, uh, wrote during 2020 called the Christian left. It came out in 2021 endorsed by Mike Huckabee. And as I toured around the country, sharing about that book, it was the number one bestseller for, or, you know, six months on Amazon and Christian leadership. And, and I saw there was still a need that although people understood there was dangers on the left, they didn't understand what was really happening. Right. And that really sparked the need for this follow-up book, Woke Jesus, uh, that, 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 you know, is out now. And, and, uh, uh, and so I, I kind of went back into writing mode and took about six months and really just dove into these topics to, to hopefully unpack this, reading all the books that nobody else wants to read so I could bring <laughs> these things that people really need to critically understand, you know, in order to be able to stand up against this woke ideology in the church. Just one, one more thing about Mayor Pete. Oh, one more. We have to, oh, I'm sorry. Yep. One more thing about Mayor Pete, just one thing is that when he was running, he actually talked about his homosexuality. He actually talked about his sexuality as a thing that is something that he didn't want, but that he felt that this was his natural. Um, this is, God made him this way, um, that he was born this way. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, basically what I heard in that is he's blaming God for it. And so it's almost like this is a cross I have to bear. And there's been a conversation. There's been actually a Christian journalist that, that has been, uh, you know, a, I'll say a so-called Christian journalist has been at the center of some of this, is is it's changing the, the view. And what he would say, and again, I wouldn't agree with this, but what he would offer is that at one time the church viewed homosexuality as, as uh, basically a curse. Mm -hmm. And then it eventually became viewed as a cross to bear. And that's sort of what Pete came out in in that frame. 
framework. And then eventually it gets viewed as a crown. And it becomes something where we have a guy like Andy Stanley who stands up and starts talking about how I wish I had more homosexuals in my church because their faith is so much stronger than mine. And so, you know, we're seeing now national, you know, once mainstream major pastors that are starting to promote a homosexual lifestyle as a crown, as not sin, as not a form of depravity. Look, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I am no better than anybody else. I struggle in all the ways that anybody else struggles. I'm only here because of the grace of God. My righteousness is a gift to me by faith, you know, by grace through faith. And, and I think that, you know, what we're seeing within this sort of progressive view of Christianity is they are, they're basically using, um, God made me this way. This is how I was created as a way to justify themselves and a way to excuse any depravity in their life is actually righteousness shaped by God. And it makes it permissive at that time to operate that way. Well, the book is called Woke Jesus. Pastor Lucas Miles, thank you so much for being on uh, Lighthouse Faith Podcast. It's been fascinating. Always a pleasure to see you, Lauren. Thank you. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music app or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. And thank you very much for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer Podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.